The Start On Demand. On demand. As we acknowledge International Holocaust Remembrance Day, a new poll shows a disturbing trend amongst both Canadian and American students. Disney is redoing Snow White, and actor Peter Dinklage is not impressed. We'll explain why and get reaction from the Little People community. Kids and mental health. We continue the conversation on mental health today, focusing on kids. We had a chat about how to access resources for mental health for youth. And if you were kidnapped, which TV character would you want to come to your rescue? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. And this is the Thursday, January 27th podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Before we discuss anything, I just received a text that made me laugh from uh, from Greg. Because, of course, he's working from home, so he can't tell me. Uh, but, Greg, I think you had something planned for us this morning <laughs> as it pertains to that uh, Jeopardy news about the second longest winning streak coming to an end. And uh, did Jeff Braun just blow that up? Yeah, he just blew that up completely. <laughs> now, Jeff Braun is all over things, and so... I'm not sure why I imagined that this story wouldn't be in his news, but I didn't even give it consideration. So, Jeff Braun, apologies to you from me. Yeah, I was looking forward to 837. I was going to quiz you guys and see if you could come up with the the question to the answer that uh, stymied Amy Schneider, the 40-time champion on Jeopardy. So um, I didn't hear it, if that helps. You didn't and hear I it? Brett, did you hear it? avoid it. I heard the answer. I didn't hear the uh, the, the question. Or what, how does it work in Jeopardy? You got you're supposed to answer the, the form of a question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, yeah. So the question is actually the answer. The answer is supposed to be in a form of a question. So you you heard that you heard the uh, question, which is you know as we would all know as the answer. Well, maybe we'll we'll quiz uh, Loren. Loren, you do your best not to listen to the newscasts <laughs> at the top of the bottom of the hour. I know it's part of your job is to pay attention to that, but. I'm uh, commanding you to not do that. It's part of my job to not do it. So, (laughs) okay, so that's coming up a bit later on in the show. Uh, But today also is an important day, and Loren, as it pertains to that day, and we'll have more on this in our next segment in more detail. But you shared a story with us yesterday. Uh, and I, I admit I, I had just awoken from a nap, and and my contact lenses. Were, I slept with my contacts in, and they were all blurry. And I was reading this headline, and I and I honestly thought my eyes were deceiving me. I couldn't believe what you shared with us yesterday. Well, I want people to keep in mind that today in Israel, for example, at 10 a.m., so this would have already happened, a siren would have sounded, two minutes of silence, people would have stopped in the street, sometimes cars stop and pull over for Holocaust Remembrance Day, International Holocaust Remembrance Day, and there are well over 100,000 survivors in Israel alone that we are pausing to honor today and think about and all they endured in the Holocaust. And so on the eve of the Holocaust, the story that we're going to share with you in our next segment had the headline from Global News, one third of Canadian and American students think the Holocaust was fabricated. 
Around a third of Canadian and American students question whether the Holocaust actually happened, according to a study commissioned by Canadian charity Liberation 75. So there was 3,000 students they talked to. We're going to hear what some Holocaust survivors had to say in this piece about just the fact that there is that kind of either denial or disbelief or straight out misinformation going on out there. And then after seven, we're going to speak with the guest um, about this report. And I was emailing back and forth with her last night. She's like, thanks for sharing this story. Sadly, I've heard far worse. And so it's just super concerning in this day and age to hear that that kind of lack of understanding, knowledge, belief, Greg, is going around. But we'll get more into that at 6.15. And of course, also just talk about this important day, International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Well, today is one of those days uh, as are many that I wish my grandfather was still with us. My grandfather went to uh, Auschwitz in the early 1970s, and his experience uh, was so deep, was so profound that he suggested that if we could afford to do it, every school-aged kid at some point in Canada should go there to see the history, to understand what happened there. And uh, he, he was there as part of an international peace group. And, and he actually escorted a woman from Toronto uh, who was, was blind. And so she couldn't read the different plaques and the different things through the museum. So my grandfather was her eyes and read the plaques aloud and read the different things uh, that were memorialized at Auschwitz to this woman. And I think that made his experience there even deeper, even stronger. That connection between him and that woman was obviously very strong as well. So um, when I hear a story like this, Brett, it, it, it breaks my heart. So we will share that story with you in full detail in our next segment, and we'll get reaction to it at 7.07. Also today, we are going to, we've been discussing mental health all week long, and uh, Loren, that conversation shall continue uh, starting at uh, 9.05 this morning. Well, I think it's just such a huge part of how we're all feeling right now is whether we're just feeling slightly down. We might not be wondering what's coming next. We might be actually feeling depression, experiencing anxiety, going through a whole host of things. And one of the things that you've been hearing in the news with Jeff is just what the impact is on our kids and the challenge there to make sure that they're living the best possible life and getting the best possible help. And we know that's part of the problem for many. If you're not doing, if you're putting up your hand and asking for help, is the help there. And so after nine, we're going to speak about psychological supports, psychiatric supports, what is or isn't there, because we hear all too often, you know, one of the bravest words, I saw someone tweet this yesterday, one of the bravest words you can utter is help to admit that you actually need it. And then when you do admit that you need it, and there's no one there, the system is not there to provide the supports you need. Well, what next? So we'll have that conversation just after nine. And I just I, I want to share this uh, very quickly here. I just want to revisit uh, something we talked about yesterday. I was just remembering this now uh, because we got a text message late. So we had already done the contest. Uh, we were talking about the dumb things that we did, or uh, the, the the stuff where we, we kind of stop ourselves and say, like, why? Why did I j- just do that? And Tim sent a text yesterday that made me howl because it, it's actually like right in my wheelhouse. Tim says he knew a guy who lived in the towers, like the Evergreen Towers, just off the Osborne Bridge, like uh, right at Osborne and, and Roslyn. Uh, that, that's where I live. And he says, uh, knew a guy who lived there. His wife asked him to pick up a few things from shoppers in the village on his way home from baseball. So he went to shoppers, got what he needed, walked out the back door, and he walked home because it's like two minutes away. So the next morning, he goes down to the parkade, find his, 
His car's not there. He takes a taxi to work, claims the car is stolen. Two days later, police show up at work to tell them they found his car in the shopper's parking lot where he left it. That's <laughs> the camera showed him. <laughs> and I, I would have done the exact same thing. I probably would have walked out the door and walked home and then remembered, oh, yeah, I actually broke my car there. So, Tim, thank you for sharing that. That's the kind of, that's one of the things that help my mental health is the funny stories that you share with us. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Today is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. And Loren shared a story with me and Greg yesterday. And uh, as I mentioned in our last segment, I thought my eyes were deceiving me. That it just can't be true. It can't. It's just stunning. Yeah, and I want to thank Julie Buckingham for first flagging this with us last night because it's going to be part of our conversations we have throughout the morning. You know, commemorations are taking place across the world for International Remembrance Day, but survivors and politicians are also warning that anti-Semitism is on the rise. And last night, Global Nationals' Karen Lieberman put out a report about a new study that suggests a shocking number of students in both Canada and the U.S. do not believe the Holocaust actually happened. I'm from Poland, the city of Lublin, which was a very large Jewish community at the time, 43,000 souls, and very, very few survived. Rose Lipsick recounts the horrors of the Holocaust, a history she experienced firsthand. I know, because my whole family perished. While Lipsick shares her painful story of survival, a new survey commissioned by a Toronto-based Holocaust organization reveals shortcomings in awareness and education. One in three teenagers surveyed questioned whether the Holocaust actually happened. And rather than getting their information in classrooms, 40% were looking to social media, platforms like Instagram and TikTok. Many of the students in Canada and the U.S. also reported having witnessed an anti-Semitic event. Some of them said, you know, I've seen this in school, I've seen it on the internet, I've seen it in my communities and with my friends. They're saying explicit anti-Semitic remarks. Everybody has assumed that teenagers are being quite well educated about the Holocaust. The founder of Liberation 75 is calling on provincial governments to mandate a more robust teaching of the Holocaust and anti-Semitism in schools. Because the lessons of the Holocaust are not just about what happened to Jews. The lessons are about what happens when we allow hate to go unchecked and we don't stand up for each other. And there appears to be an appetite to know more. The survey showed students want to become more literate in Holocaust and genocide studies. 93% of Ontario students want to learn more about the Holocaust. 87% want to learn about other genocides. Lipsick says knowledge is key. To knowing what's going on and what happened in the world and what hate can bring all about. Karen Lieberman, Global News. Seems impossible, doesn't it? That we're at this point with all the education all the time we spend to be aware of historical events. And we're at this point that so many people, so many young people, Loren, believe that this never happened. I suppose there's some good news in that report in that there was it showed an appetite from teenagers who wanted to learn more. So that's something that we think we need to seize upon and, and 
I restart, kickstart, reinvigorate that education process. But as we were saying, you know, there are there are people right around the world today that talking about, and we've talked about this over the past couple of years, about the rise in anti-Semitism and the very concerning nature of that. So we'll chat with B'nai B'rith right after 7 o'clock to get their thoughts. And as I said, she shared with me last night that the link that I sent to her was disturbing. Unfortunately, she's seen far worse. So we'll ask her what she means about that and what we can maybe do to help. The so-called Freedom Convoy heading to Ottawa and its supporters claim vaccine mandates on Canadian truckers are straining the country's supply chain, creating a food shortage crisis. Mm, But are those restrictions really causing empty shelves in grocery stores? Global's David Aiken breaks down what's fact and fiction over the convoy's grievances. Many in the convoy say they've had enough with vaccine mandates. A lot of people are trying to say that these types of things are are done out of anger, but this is actually being done out of frustration towards the things that the, the government is imposing upon Canadian citizens. And federal conservatives are lining up squarely behind this protest, blaming the Trudeau government's vaccine mandate for truckers for grocery store shelves that may not look like they normally do. On Wednesday, Trudeau's transport minister rejected those claims. It's it's misguided at best. It is irresponsible at worst to be promoting fear and panic among Canadians that our food supply is at risk. The CEO of one of the country's major grocery store chains, Metro, confirmed that view in an investor call Tuesday, though the CEO said the vaccine mandate may push some prices up. On the vaccination of truckers, um it's, it's having or, or will have mostly an inflationary impact on the cost of uh, merchandise coming in from the U.S., produce especially. Uh, we, we saw an uptick in, in, in the transportation costs right away, but we're getting the merchandise. Um, so our, our transportation providers are able to service us. In fact, the biggest problem causing product shortages right now is Omicron, forcing employees to stay off the job, be it on the farm, in the warehouse, or in grocery stores. The pandemic slowed things down across the supply chain, but Omicron was a huge blow to the food industry. Um, You have to really operate and do the same things with way fewer people around. So the idea um, to reduce the supply chain's issues to a vaccine mandate is, is inaccurate and is false. And then there's the problems the convoy itself may cause disrupting national highways. Canadians support truckers, but I, I, don't, I don't believe they, they, they support the convoy because the convoy is creating some disruptions. And, and that's the last thing we need right now. Meanwhile, police responsible for Parliament Hill are preparing for the arrival this weekend of possibly hundreds of big rigs, many they expect will be filled with angry truckers. David Aiken, Global News, Ottawa. So one of the voices that was heard in that story was from a grocery chain CEO, which is Metro, and they represent stores, I think almost a thousand stores in Ontario and Quebec. And so what he said is that Mostly what they're challenged with is the supplies are going to cost them more to get them across and there's inflationary pressures and all the rest. But it's early days into this mandate for sure. And I do know there's other people who have said they've seen different things that are not at their store. The shelves look a little bare in some spots. You know, for example, I couldn't get bananas at our local store yesterday. But is that because the bananas didn't cross the border or because, you know, the staff shortages were occurring that they just couldn't stock the shelves in time like there's all sorts of things going on but it is something to watch for sure and I would like to know what listeners are seeing and if they're 
watching this and thinking, what should I buy ahead of time? They've warned us repeatedly, you know, we don't need to panic buy. We need to just stay calm. Everything's going to be fine. But I think it's on people's minds as to what sort of impact will this mandate have, Greg? Yeah, there's been lots of stresses on this front for months and months and months. So this isn't unique to what we've seen in terms of these uh, vaccine mandates for truckers on either side of the border. Uh, we've seen shortages. We've seen supply chain challenges really since the beginning of the pandemic. When it comes to bananas, lots of times I've either had to buy very green bananas or none at all. Uh, so, you know, my wife works in this world and uh, I hear every day, you know, the challenges she's had uh, for weeks and months in terms of getting certain product to Winnipeg or other centers that her company does business in. So this isn't new. Uh, if you're seeing shortages, there are, you know, Kellogg's. We've had that conversation about Rice Krispies and other Kellogg cereals. There was a big strike in Michigan that that slowed production, halted it for a period of time. So you might be seeing shortages there. But I, I don't know if it, it's a good thing to downplay the potential for this. Panic buying, not a good thing. But I'm with you. I'd like to hear what uh, you're seeing at your lo local store. Are you having a hard time getting things that usually aren't a big deal? I'll tell you one thing we couldn't find, even at Costco the other day, was Frank's Red Hot Sauce. Hmm. Certainly not a staple. Something that makes my food taste a lot better. But I'm, you know, I can survive without it. Just barely, though. Do you still have problems finding Fresca? There's no Fresca anywhere. Uh, Jackie found <laughs> some mini Frescas a couple of fresca? weeks ago. Hey, hey, who did you say? I'm just chirping you on Fresca drinking. I mean, I like my Fresca, <laughs> but is that like a high demand item? In our house it is. And I've had like, to give it up. I, I, don't I was trying to get off here. the Coca-Cola. We have important things to talk about with supply chains, but I don't know if Frank's hot sauce is making your meal taste better. Isn't it just disguising a bunch of things? Oh, Loren. So you many still things hate celery? Teach you. But pardon me? <laughs> I knew you, you said celery, didn't you? <laughs> the celery is the accoutrement with the, uh, with the wings, okay? If anything is, is hiding the flavor. Well, wait, hold on. Celery doesn't really taste like anything, does it, Loren? That? You know, here's where it here here's where it turns. I can dish it. I don't want to take it. Okay, <laughs> not today, my friend. How's that sound? Mackling McGarry and McNabb. Loren sent us a tweet yesterday with a picture on it that reads, "You've been kidnapped. You can call on the characters from one television show." To make a rescue attempt, which show do you pick? And the person who posted this uh, says, I choose the A-Team. And you know what? If I was better prepared, I would have had a clip prepared of, uh, say, Mr. T as B.A. Baraka saying something like, it's time to stop yammering and time to start hammering. But uh, I don't have that, so I just did a lousy impersonation. But that's the question. Who would you call upon to rescue you? If you've been kidnapped, who from television would you want? So text us at 204-780-6868. Tell us who and tell us why. The why is what will get you the $20 gift card for Santa Lucia pizza. Or if you just want to make it a bit more general, like you're just having a bad day, which TV character would you call upon to lift your spirits? 204-780-6868. Loren, you found this tweet yesterday. Start us off. 
I'm trying to find all these clips you've just dropped. I was just went down a frantic A-team Googling, and I was trying to make that work, and it didn't. And uh, Anyway, I, I'm going to try to play this because it didn't work on my downloader. If you can't hear it, I'll stop. I feel like I'd be in a situation where my mouth would get me in a problem by saying something wrong, and so you want to call someone in who knows how to just talk, talk a little mean. Don't be angry. I'm not angry. I think it's funny. <laughs> Rosa Diaz, Brooklyn Nine Nine, the resident bad A double. You know what? She's awesome. She wears a leather coat. She rides a motorcycle. She's kind of funny. She looks great whenever she does anything. She can kick like nobody's business, punch like nobody's business. If I were being kidnapped or just looking for a laugh, I'd call in Rosa Diaz from Brooklyn Nine Nine. Super loyal as well. Yes, but she's very impatient. Like I, yeah. I, I could see Rosa being like, "Okay, I got, I saved you. No, shut up." Yeah, and we wouldn't be friends after. Like, it's not like this would turn into a lifelong friendship. She'd probably never talk to me again. But she'd help me out. So that's who I'd call her. I like that. Oh, and by the way. It's time to quit jammering before I start hammering. Ah, okay. It's time to quit jammering before I start hammering. (laughs) Your words might have been incorrect, but your impersonation wasn't that lame, Brett. Shut up, boo. Uh, Mackling, why don't we go with you? One of our listeners does not want to play this game. They do not want to immerse themselves in the world of fantasy. Listen, what kind of lame kidnapper would give you your phone? (laughs) You you would be zip-tied and hog-tied in a closet with a gag in your mouth and a bag over your head. You're not going anywhere quick. I guess this is the words of of our listener if they were uh, kidnapping you. Listen, I know and I claim this uh, openly and freely. This is supreme recency bias. But Marty Bird from Ozark, he can talk his way out of anything, get himself and his family out of absolutely any situation, uh, you know. And then, you know, really you get to meet Jason Bateman, who's uh, really such a cool guy. So, uh, yeah, I'm calling Marty Bird because he always answers his phone. He never lets a, a phone call go to voicemail. He's also the only person, I, character I can think of, like, where you you think, you know what, he probably would talk that calmly with six guns to his head okay just hang on one second if everyone could just calm calm down calm (laughs) down like he's always just in the thick of it and never changes his tone cool as a cucumber or celery stalk oh celery callback okay so i guess i'll reframe the question then who would you want to come rescue you obviously you're not calling them but who would you want to come rescue you uh poetress what about you well, maybe this will help that listener who can't, uh, you know, doesn't have the, even the, the, the smallest semblance of an imagination <laughs> or anything like that. Like, this is like, we're talking about TV characters. Of course, yeah. they're coming to save you. They're going to have you in a closet. Hogtied. You're not going to, they're not going to let you survive. <laughs> get out of there. It's like, no, come on. Uh, so this might be a little easier for that listener, but uh, <laughs> I, I would have, I'm going to turn this on its head a little bit and I'm going to be in medical distress. I have some sort of mystery illness. I'm calling Dr. Gregory House, um, yes. a major jerk, so miserable that probably I would have to like when he left the room, I'd be like, can you believe that guy? Like, it's kind of funny how like miserable he is, but like an incredible doctor and like an encyclopedic knowledge of like all kinds of diseases. I remember one episode, I, I watched it religiously. Um, it was like some somebody had like the Black Plague and he found out the other person was like getting gold poisoning and he like broke into the house and was able to figure it out they had to like he sent like foreman and and cameron into the house to like break into there to figure out what was going on so he'll stop at nothing to figure out what's wrong with you 
so uh, and he's got all the gadgets and tools they've ever in his magical New Jersey hospital. He's got every single thing you could imagine. So, yeah, I'd get uh, Dr. Gregory House to save me if I was ever in medical distress. And then he'd probably make fun of you as well in humorous yeah, fashion. So yeah, I'd sit there playing on a Game Boy while I was like, yeah, yeah you had this problem. I'll see you later, you dweeb. <laughs> and then anything uh, followed up with, like, you're still going to die, but not right now. <laughs> um, Forte, what about you? I would like to pick, uh, you know what, so many different characters from one of the Warner Bros. You know, like... Uh, Bugs Bunny, he's always gotten away from Elmer Fudd. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, you have the coyote, or not the coyote, uh, Roadrunner, always gets away from coyote. You got Foghorn Leghorn, who could just, you know, yap away, and, you know, nobody wants to be I'll around say, that I'll guy. Say, I say boy. Yeah, exactly. So one of those characters, a good, and it'd always be fun, too, you know. <laughs> I wouldn't be scared. I'd be having fun while I'm getting rescued. We have, uh, we actually had uh, somebody come in here, Loren, also with Ozark, and they say they would pick Ruth from oh, yeah. Ozark because she doesn't take any crap and she is fierce and she's kind of crazy as well. And on that note as well, you might even want, well, if Darlene from Ozark is on your side, no. she might be good, but there's also the risk that she'll shoot you in the face. Yeah, she'd 100%. rescue you and then just shoot you with a shotgun and you go flying. Through. She's all, she's all. The, no, I've never seen so many bodies fly from shotgun killings. <laughs> Nobody ridiculous. is safe around <laughs> no. around her. There's no Lock? way, no how. I don't like you're sleeping with one eye open if you're within five miles of her. <laughs> she probably kidnapped you just so she could rescue you, then kill you. Like, that's where she's at. <laughs> I wouldn't. I Why did you get yourself her. kidnapped like that? Kaboom! <laughs> yeah. As you can tell, we like Ozark on Netflix. It's a great show. You should watch it. <laughs> Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, today marks the 77th anniversary of the liberation of the Auschwitz concentration camp. As we pause today to remember Nazi atrocities on this International Holocaust Remembrance Day, a disturbing report shows just how many people continue to question the Holocaust to this day. Yeah, Brett, as we shared with our listeners at 6.15, there's a new survey that was commissioned by a Toronto-based Holocaust organization that found one in three teenagers questioned whether the Holocaust actually happened. Ruth Ashrafi is the regional director in Manitoba for B'nai B'rith, Canada, and our guest this morning. Good morning, Ruth. Good morning. So I would like to start with that survey, if we could, because when I sent you the story last night, um, we were exchanging a few emails, and you responded by saying, unfortunately, you had seen worse. So I'd, I'd like to know what you mean by that and get your reaction here. Well, you know, young people, uh, when they think that the Holocaust did not really happen or that the extent of it is exaggerated by Jews, uh, that is something that I have seen a lot of. And quite frankly, in a way, I understand it. Let me just explain that. When you walk into the Holocaust Museum in Washington, the very first thing that you see is video footage of the British troops liberating the concentration camp of Bergen-Belsen in 1945. And why? Because the British commander said, nobody is going to believe this. This is so atrocious that you will only believe it if you see it with your own eyes. Those British soldiers were walking into a camp where there were piles of corpses, walking skeletons, and this didn't happen hundreds of years ago somewhere in the dark Middle Ages, but it happened in the 20th century in Germany, one of the most countries in the world. It just begs belief unless you see it with your own eyes. 
And let me give you some numbers. The numbers are staggering. In a short period, in 1944, between the middle of May and the middle of July, in a mere 55 days, 440,000 Hungarian Jews were deported to Auschwitz, 8,000 persons per day, seven days per week, and the majority was gassed on arrival. And it is, it's, it's just beyond comprehension, but it did happen. And therefore, I think it should be compulsory on the social studies curriculum in Canada, in every province and territory, to learn about the Holocaust. Because there are, and there are excellent Holocaust courses and great training programs for social studies teachers uh, available. And I think it's the job of the Canadian government to educate the Canadian youth. Because if the government and schools do not do it, children will get their information from social media. And there, anybody can say anything. Ruth, you mentioned social media, and we've seen images, we've seen memes, we've seen posts from people who liken uh, the restrictions and the and the different public health orders we've seen over the last couple of years tied to COVID-19, even the vaccination pass. They, they try and make a correlation to what happened in Nazi Germany, what happened in the concentration camps. They make a correlation to the Holocaust. What, what do you think? How do, what do you feel when you see comparisons like that being made right now? Well, again, education, education, education. Education is so important. And I think that, there, that also a day like today when we remember the Holocaust is so important. I think there are three, three, three reasons why 77 years after the fact, we still need to think about this and really think deeply about what happened and its repercussions. Because the Holocaust was not just a crime against Jews and other victims like Roma, homosexuals, the handicapped and Jehovah's Witnesses. It was a crime against humanity. And let me explain that for a moment. Jews in Europe were hatred because they were different. And for centuries in Christian Europe, Jews had been the only religious minority. They were always the other. But here it is. We are all other, different or unique. And that is what makes us human. And a society that has no room for difference has no room for humanity. And the, the problem is that the hate that begins with Jews usually never ends with Jews. History shows the Jews are often the canary in the coal mine. And where you find hate, you find a threat to a free society. And that brings me to the second reason why it is so important to remember and study the Holocaust, because although it is only 77 years in the past, anti-Semitism is alive and well. So in North America, in Europe, in the Middle East, Jews are being accused of almost anything. They control the media, they control the economy, they attacked the Twin Towers on 9-11, they created AIDS, Ebola, and now on social media, people make those comparisons with the, uh, the anti-vaxxers and Jews who were being persecuted in the Second World War. And that is a completely different situation that diminishes the real impact of the Holocaust. And the problem with that is that in 2020, there was an 18% increase in anti-Semitic incidents over the year before. And to put that in perspective, 15% of all the hate crimes in Canada are committed against Jews, but Jews are only 1% of the Canadian population. Jews are the country's most targeted religious minority. So again, social media use, somebody, I don't know whom, 
should regulate what people can post, and people should also take it seriously and not just uh, and, and think what they are doing when they, put, uh, when they post uh, a yellow star of David on an anti-vaccination site. Ruth, we only have about 60 seconds, but we do uh, want to get this in because you are working to try to raise awareness about an honorary Canadian citizen. Can you tell us about him? Yes. In, uh, his name is Raoul Wallenberg. He was a Swedish diplomat, and he was stationed in Hungary in 1944. And he issued false Swedish passports to Hungarian Jews, which made them Swedish citizens, and then they could not be rounded up and transported to Auschwitz. Uh, the Russians liberated Budapest in 1945, and in January of the 17th of 1945, Wallenberg was arrested and has disappeared. And the Russians have given different uh, stories of what happened to him. According to one story, he died of a heart attack. According to another story, he was executed. So B'nai Berit has launched a petition to ask access to Russian archives so that we can really check what happened to this man. He helped so many people. He gave uh, 100,000 passes to Jews in Hungary, saved 100,000 lives, and we do not know what happened to him. He helped so many, and he was not helped by so many himself. So we want to change that. And we have a petition. And if you go to our website, benaibrit.ca, B-N-A-I-B-R-I-T-H.ca, you can sign a petition so that the Russian government will open its archives. Rutha Shrafi, the regional director, Manitoba for B'nai B'rith Canada, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Ruth, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. International Holocaust Remembrance Day. And again, if you want to read more on that global news story about the study that shows that a third of Canadian students and American students who were surveyed say they, they don't believe, they, they doubt the Holocaust. Just uh, shocking, shocking uh, study results. So that's at globalnews.ca. town salute and every once in a while we stretch the boundaries of our small town salute and the definition of the title yeah today we are staying inside the perimeter highway it's not even close geographically we're heading to downtown winnipeg however we are at the same time visiting a place which celebrates all of manitoba and loren we've sold this to ourselves at least amongst the three of us yes just stay with us stay Stay with this moment because, sure, <laughs> we want to take you to the Manitoba Museum, which is downtown. But as I said, that's a destination for so many kids all across this province for school trips. It features the planetarium, which features our sky, which is more beautiful to see from a small town with fewer lights. And I'm selling it to you this way because the Manitoba Museum has something exciting to announced today. So we're joined by Dorota Blumshinska, who's the Chief Executive Officer of the Manitoba Museum. And I want to say good morning to you. And please, apologies, could you pronounce your name for me? Because I want to make sure I get that correct. Uh, good morning. My name is pronounced Dorota Blumshinska. <laughs> I love it. Okay. So Dorota, we know that you've been operating as business unusual. Things haven't been normal, yes. to say the least. So we have some good news on the horizon, Dorota. Yes, we do. We are reopening on February 3rd, and we couldn't be more excited. So there have been some 
changes over the past several years at the museum. Can you give us a couple of highlights, some of the things we'll be able to see once you reopen? Oh, you know what? I It's, it's more than a couple of highlights. More than 50% of the museum galleries have been completely renewed. So it's a very, very different experience. And I think what, uh, what Manitobans from across the entire province are really going to enjoy is... Um, is these wonderful um, experiences of audio and visual uh, together with incredible new exhibitions, um, storytelling woven throughout the museum, uh, new prairies gallery that celebrate the flora and the fauna, but also um, incredible uh, trade routes throughout all of North America, um, agricultural advances. It's, it's just so much of the museum has been transformed, and I think it's it's a powerful experience that everyone needs to come and see for themselves. Dorota, uh, my my friend, it's Greg here. My friends are coming from BC mm-hmm. this summer, and, and and at least that's the plan. Well, we'll you know, best mm-hmm. laid plans these days. My friend grew up in Manitoba. His wife has been here just a couple of times, but his daughter's never been here. And so we were talking the other day about things we'd like to do when they come. I said, you want to rent mm-hmm. a cottage or whatever? And the first thing he said, no, I want my daughter mm-hmm. to see the Manitoba Museum. I have such incredible memories of of the museum. So could you talk about, you know, those changes you mentioned, you touched on a little bit about the technology. My kids love the Canadian Museum for Human Rights for that part of it. And they love coming Mm -hmm. to the Manitoba Museum, but teenagers, can you, can you try and appeal to them for, for the next uh, 90 seconds or so? Oh, absolutely. I mean, so when you go through the Manitoba Museum, you have to Keep in mind that we're celebrating the land, the skies, the people, and we're reaching as far back as 500 million years. To see um, really ancient, um, you know, exhibitions, for example, uh, we have a Guinness World Records uh, carolabite, which is some sort of very long water creature that I don't understand, but it's incredibly (laughs) impressive. you know, you get to go through the Arctic and subarctic, like you're taken through all of the biomes of the entire province. So you're experiencing all these various landscapes, but together with that, the human stories. And throughout the museum, you have a chance, I think, especially as a young learner, um, to question history, to come into conversation with history, um, to learn something that might challenge your previous understanding and, and ask you to further investigate it. Um, you know, the Manitoba Museum welcomes over 80,000 Manitoba students every single year. So this is an element of bringing education, I think, to life and then that education turning into action. Um, so for young people especially, I think the experience is, is visceral. It, it surrounds them. Um, I think the audio and visual really enhances it. But I think what's most important is as you go through the spaces, um, you're getting an opportunity to interact with some of these social objects that have memories, that carry stories, and that might tell an alternate narrative that I think is going to help you better understand what you're learning, not just within school, but within life. That's a great sell. And I, I, you know, one of the greatest things about being a parent is you get to do things again with your kids, right? And I love taking them back to the Manitoba Museum. You've got changes. You've augmented a lot of the spaces. I just want to quickly, before I let you go, but there's still, for those who are also returning for our childhood memories you still have the town. You still have the non-such. We do. We okay, do. We, so we have all those beautiful, iconic pieces, and I want to see more pictures in front of the Bison Hunt. But the thing about the non-such 
is now you can hear the traders and the port people moving around the port and a storm comes in, you know, and the lights change and the environment around it changes. So it's come to life in a very new way. But the things that we've loved are fundamentally there, but we get to experience them in a magical way now. So once again, the Manitoba Museum reopening February 3rd. Dorota Blumchinska. Did I, did I get that right? Was I close? Yes. Well done. <laughs> Chief Executive Officer and Executive Director of the Manitoba Museum joining us live on 680 CJOB. Thank you very much for this. I, I'm excited. I can't wait yeah. to see it. Thank you. We can't wait to see you all back. Thank you. Would you like Tyrion Lannister to come rescue you? He could talk his way out of pretty much anything. And that ties into what we're about to discuss here. A planned live-action remake of a Disney classic has at least one Hollywood actor... The man who plays Tyrion Lannister in Game of Thrones, asking if the movie-making giant is missing the mark. Here's the story from ET Canada. Peter Dinklage is criticizing Disney's live-action remake of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, accusing the studio of double standards and calling on Disney to reassess the entire project. Yeah, while the cast is racially diverse, uh, with Latino actress Rachel Ziegler playing Snow White, Peter called out the other damaging stereotypes seen elsewhere in the story as he spoke on Mark Maron's WTF podcast. It's really progressive to um, cast a, a, literally no offense to anything, but I was a little taken back by the very, very, they're very proud to cast a, a Latino actress as Snow White. Yeah. But you're still telling the story of Snow still White. Snow White, yeah. Seven Dwarfs. Sure. So, look, take, take a step back and look at what you're doing there. Yeah. I know. That makes no sense to me. But, oh, so what, you can what, be, you're progressive in one way, and then but you're still making that backward oh, story of back. seven dwarves <laughs> living in a cave. To get, what the f- are you doing, man? We, you know, have yeah, I yeah. have I done nothing to advance the cause? <laughs> That's the incredible timber of Peter Dinklage, four-time Emmy Award-winning actor for his work on Game of Thrones. In conversation with comedian Mark Marin. On Marin's longtime running podcast, WTF. It's a great podcast, by the way. We wanted to get reaction to this story from our friend, Samantha Rayburn Trubick, who is president of the organization Little People of Manitoba. Samantha, good morning. Hi, how are you? Doing really well. So, what was your reaction to Peter Dinklage and, and his statement regarding the Snow White remake? So, uh, before I start, I just want to mention that I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of myself, not on the organization. Um, but I personally believe that I agree with his statement 100%. I do believe that they, you know, his statement requires some clarification and some context. But the statements were clearly made out of anger, and there was a lot of passion. And that was evident in the way that the statement, you know, came across. I can recognize, though, that on the surface, many people might look at the film, like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in question, you know, what could possibly be wrong with that? It seems like a wholesome movie. The dwarves seem like a happy family, one might even say. But, you know, the point is that for someone like myself and others like me, these types of iconic characters become a source of abuse. You know, for many, many decades, little people were typecast into exploitive roles like, you know, Oompa Loompas or Munchkins or Dwarves. And, you know, this created ammunition for harassment and for bullies to use against people like myself. So, you know, where Snow White and the Seven Dwarves may, you know, recall some warm memories for many people and many average-sized people who enjoyed, you know, the Disney masterpiece that it is, 
for me, it was a, a source of abuse. You know, it's something that was used to ostracize me for my size. And what, you know, Peter Dinklage was saying is that little people were not alone in being exploited. And given these roles that, you know, are mocked or subject, subjugated um, or subjected, sorry, in some way, but as a society, you know, and as Hollywood seems to be evolving, we seem to be left behind. So in the Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, which he called out, the remake, you know, he said that, and Snow White and Disney, you know, mentioned that they're casting a Latina actress as Snow White. The LP community, though, is one that unfortunately has been overlooked in this regard. Now, you know, with that being said, Dinklage is an exceptional actor. And he has, you know, starred in some really groundbreaking roles, such as, you know, Elf, you know, Game of Thrones, Station Agent, etc., and, you know, he's worked very, very hard to beat some very long odds to move the needle in the right direction. So where little people are not there to simply mock or ostracize, I can understand, you know, why the person who has broken that mold would be upset as he was to see another remake of a movie that doesn't cast us in the brightest light. Now, uh, Samantha, in a statement to Entertainment Tonight, a spokesperson for Disney said, to avoid reinforcing stereotypes from the original animated film, we are taking a different approach with these seven characters and have been consulting with members of the dwarfism community. And one such member of that community is actor Dylan Postal. Um, He was also a pro wrestler. Most notably, he was Hornswoggle in the WWE. He's actually condemning Dinklage and his comments. And I'll just paraphrase here because we don't have time to play the clip. But he was basically saying, like, why are you getting upset? about like these roles are actually literally fit for people like me um so what's the big deal so uh, i mean it turns out disney's planning to make the seven dwarfs magical creatures that will be cgi anyway but what would you what would your take be on that kind of a comment like that why are you upset about a role fit for people like us you know i we're all going to have difference of opinions we're all going to have different sources of abuse um you know, you could talk to, to five different little people and we're all going to have different different opinions on this. Um, for me, it's a source of abuse. I appreciate that Disney is taking, a, it sounds like a good stand. I appreciated their comment. You know, they are pretty fantastic at what they do. And I am by far not a creative genius, but I completely trust that they will make this right and they will do, you know, what they need to do to make it a positive step um, and that they're taking his comment seriously. Um, not everybody's going to agree with Dinklage, not everybody's going to agree with me, um, but not everybody has the same source of abuse, similar to other minority groups. Yeah, and it's all about putting yourself in someone else's shoes, I think, Samantha, right? Some people might say, oh, come on, we're going too far with this, and and they'll just say, like, it's it's, it's overreactionary. On the other hand, at least we're having the conversation, right? You're making the point that we don't all have to agree, but we have to listen. Yeah, and I think, you know, you bring up a great point. I think whenever groups that have been exploited stand up for themselves, there's going to be a contingent of people that want to resist any type of change. And they will try to classify you even further into being a progressive or a snowflake or too easily offended. And I doubt you would find anyone in that contingent of society who has faced the type of abuse that people like me um, have because of, you know, characters like the dwarves or the Oompa Loompas or the Munchkins. You know, I still hold out hope that some folks may come around and, you know, and at some point see that the comments that Mr. Dinklage was making, you know, was not merely for sensationalism or publicity, but they're coming from a place of pain and suffering. And the intent is not to rewrite history. The intent is to improve, you know, improve the seat at the table for people like myself. And quite frankly, just to grasp a little bit of respect. 
Samantha Rayburn-Trubick, thank you very much for joining us. We love talking to you. It's a pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you. Let's talk some game show. Yeah, this is a good distraction, right? From some of the other discussions we've been having this morning, we like to have fun here on the start, in addition to bringing you all the news and all the inside conversation that you might not get anywhere else. Now, Loren, have you succeeded in sequestering yourself from Jeff Braun's newscast this morning? I It's so funny. I listen to them at every top and bottom of the hour, but I've absolutely missed out on this story. Like, I don't have a hot clue what the answer is here, so go for it. Okay, this is good. So Amy Schneider's Jeopardy reign came to an end yesterday. At least that's when the episode aired. So Jeff Braun's been letting you know about that throughout the morning with his global news. Uh, Schneider is an engineering manager from Oakland, California. She is now number two on the all-time consecutive wins list with 40. Number one contestant of all time is, of course, Ken Jennings. He's the host of Jeopardy now. He put together a 74 show win streak schneider's winnings a cool 1.382 million dollars that's fourth most all time so loren do you want to take a crack at the question or the answer which sunk her yesterday yep go okay so this is in final jeopardy (laughs) the category is countries of the world this is the only nation in the world whose name in english ends in an h it's also one of the 10 most populous. Bangladesh. Whoa, bang, just like Come that. Come on. Just like that. And I didn't cheat. I, d- I have cheated on the wordle twice, if that makes anyone feel better. But <laughs> you did, Why would you do that? Because <laughs> I couldn't figure it out. I didn't want to be wrong. And so I Google, you know, five words that have an N, O, and T in them or things like that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You're but reminding I, me. The, you're, the, 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 you're reminding me of my ex-girlfriend. I almost said her name on air. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> but uh, when we first started spending time together, I don't even know if we were dating yet. We watched Jeopardy. We were both in the restaurant business, so we're sort of free you know, in that late afternoon, depending on the shifts we were working. And I would always kick her butt in jeopardy. So one day she starts getting all these questions right. And I was like, what's going on here? Finally, I said, you've been reading? Like, did you buy some encyclopedias? What's going on here? And she turned absolutely red. She goes, I watched it at four o'clock. So I teach you at five o'clock. I so good on you for getting Bangladesh without apo- any sort of help. You, you, no, you, I promise you, you I really didn't. I swear to you, I didn't because it, the most populous is what gave it away. At first, I thought, well, the only one I can think of is Bangladesh. <laughs> and then it said the most populous, and I was pretty sure it was. But um, I'm not trying to make. I'm giving you a stand. I'm not trying to make Amy bad. Schneider feel bad, but I feel like, feel like you know what, Amy? You should have known that. You should have known that. She should have known that. No, Brett? Maybe she did know and she just tanked it. Maybe she just just had enough. (laughs) I can't take any more of listening to this music day after day after day. (laughs) I'm done. I am done. I'm out. Like she may, uh, she's walking away with 1.3 million or almost 1.4 million bucks. But uh, I never, I don't think, 
I don't think I ever would have come up with that. And, uh, and I was disqualified from participating in this because I did hear that clip in our very first, in Jeff's first newscast at six o'clock where Greg, I could, I could hear the, the prices right tuba going from uh, Greg's place in North Kildonan all the way from here as, as the wah, 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 cause you had this big plan to quiz us on this and yeah, but, um, uh, Bangladesh. Yeah. Good for you, Loren. That took you all of like two seconds. I don't even think it was that long. I don't even think I'd finished asking the question. Pretty impressive, mm. McNabb. Have you ever thought about going on Jeopardy? No, I'm terrible at that show. I'm not good at trivia at all. Like not at all. <laughs> like that's that's a fluke. We should do this actually weekly, and then I wouldn't know the answers to anything. It'd be the opposite. Oh well, well now see now given how quickly you answered that question or that you knew it was Bangladesh. Um, if now that you say that you won't know anymore, I don't know that I'll believe you. I think you might be tanking it just like Schneider. If it's pop culture, I'm not going to know anything. And if it's music related, I won't know. Yeah, all our listeners are culture and music. That's every once in a while. They'll slide a category like that in on Jeopardy. I I'm, I'm with you, Brett. This week and next week, we are focusing several stories and features on our mental health right here on 680 CJOB. Yeah, and some might suggest all the awareness about mental health, wellness, and breaking down stigma has its challenges. Simply put, are the resources available keeping up with our desire for care? Dr. Julia Riddell is an assistant professor with clinical health psychology at the University of Manitoba. She is also a clinician scientist who works as a consulting psychologist in the Interlake Eastern Region Health Authority, providing psychological assessment and treatment for children, adolescents, and adults. Good morning, Julia. How are you this morning? Good morning. It's really, I'm doing really well, and it's great to be here. Well, I appreciate you shuffling your schedule to make sure you could join us for a few minutes this morning. We appreciate it very much. I don't ever want to suggest finding the strength to ask for help needs to be well-timed. However, my concern is, do we have the resources to answer all those calls for help? Um, So, yeah, that's a really important question. It's one that's really close to my heart and one that lots of people across the province um, are thinking about together. Um, What we know right now is that um, we have definitely a greater need for service than we're able to meet. Um, So, for example, there was a big study that came out of SickKids recently um, in Toronto where they found that up to 70% of adolescents um, had clinically significant depressive symptoms, Um, uh, that was worsened because of the pandemic. And we just don't have the resources to support all of those um, children and adolescents right now, Um, particularly across Manitoba. We have the fewest number of psychologists of any province in Canada. Um, And so we do have long wait times. Um, We do have um, really a lot of of demand for services. Um, And we do need more um, commitment to mental health funding or to provide the the needs that we're seeing. You know, Dr. Riddell, I've often wondered in school systems right now, and you're talking about the fact you just said 70% of kids. Is that correct? That number, 70% are reporting that they're having... That's what the the recent study um, from the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, that's what they found. 70% of adolescents reported um, significant depressive symptoms. 
Right. So here we are, you know, we put a phys ed teacher in school or we try to, we talk all about physical health, but are the school, like, let's just start at that school level because that's where a kid might often put up their hand or their teenager to want to talk to their teacher or a counselor. We focus on physical health in school. Is there a therapist in every single school or a counselor or a psychologist to, to meet that need just starting at that grassroots level? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, there are uh, school psychologists. um, They're not, um, so they typically have a master's degree and their role is to provide assessments. Um, There are school counselors um, who would be available to meet with students, um, but we don't have, you know, the kind of, so for example, um, the ability to provide evidence-based diagnosis and treatment um, like uh, what we often need for children who are really, really struggling. Um, we don't have that capacity in schools right now for the most part. What can we be doing to determine if it's time to consult a professional? Oh, that's a great question. So we want to look at um, whether that child, that adolescent, or uh, for ourselves, um, for our adults, um, if we're having difficulties doing the things that really matter to us. So is our child having trouble um, sleeping? Are they having trouble eating? Are they having trouble learning? Are they having difficulties um, interacting with friends or um, playing for ourselves? Are we having trouble working? Um, So really it's about our functioning, our ability to do day-to-day activities, the things that matter. Um, Those are the things that we really want to look out for. And when our, um, you know, mental health challenges are getting in the way of doing the things that means something to us, that's when we really, we want to seek help. Julia, why is it so important when it comes to children to get help when mental health issues begin or when, you know, when we start noticing these things versus waiting, is there a danger that we, that we wait too long to seek help and to get our kids, uh, you know, in front of a psychologist as an example? Yeah, so I wouldn't say it's necessarily a danger, but I'd say that there's definitely a benefit to early intervention. So we know from research um, that when we intervene earlier in children's lives, um, particularly when parents are involved in that intervention, we can make a really big difference. Um, We can see big gains in fewer visits. Um, and that that can be um, really helpful for that child. It's less disruptive. Um, There's less of an impact on their life. I would say it's never too late. I do treatment with people. I see children, I see adolescents, and I see adults. And um, I've done lots of treatment for folks who are in their 50s and 60s, and they make wonderful gains, and they have a a great um, prognosis. And I think, you know, if you are noticing that your kid or your adolescent is struggling, uh, we know that early intervention can make a huge difference. So with with that, before we let you go, you know, I think one of the great things about the kids these days is they are learning to talk about this more than generations past. The language that they have and the conversations they're already having in the school school setting are super important, not to mention the ones we hope they're having at home. If they've put up their hand and said, I, I need to talk to somebody or I'm feeling, I'm feeling all these feelings. You know, we have a listener who's texted us a few times over the past few days. His daughter asked him for help. He's called a bunch of places. He can't get the help he's looking for yeah. right now. Where does he turn? What are the resources they can go to, to make that start for a psychologist? So that's an excellent question. Um, the Manitoba Psychological Society does have a find a psychologist um, resource list. 
So that's a list of psychologists um, that are across the province. Um, to be honest, the need for services is so great that a lot of private practices have had to close their wait list. Um, a lot of private psychologists are no longer able to accept patients because their wait lists are so long. Um, the need for services like I really can't say it strongly enough. It's so great that not only are waitlist years long in the public system, but private practices um, are full. And so a lot of people are having that issue where they can't get the help they need publicly or privately, um, which is why there's so many of us that are advocating to the government um, to have um, better funding for mental health because uh, the need is so great. Um, and so many people are like, the individual you're, you're speaking of are having that same experience where they're calling five, six, seven, eight psychologists um, using the MPS find a psychologist list. And they're finding that, you know, maybe the eighth person has a room on their wait list. Um, but it is a, it's a difficult process for so many people. Dr. Julia Riddell, Assistant Professor in Clinical Health Psychology at the University of Manitoba, also a clinician scientist who works as a consulting psychologist in the Interlake Eastern Regional Health Authority. Thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, $20 gift card, Santa Lucia pizza up for grabs. If you were kidnapped or were in a tricky situation and you needed a TV character to come rescue you, who would you want it to be? And Loren... Cliff went down a road I was not expecting this morning, but I love it. It's so sweet. I thought this was such a nice sentiment. Cliff says, Mr. Rogers can rescue me anytime. He would make the kidnappers understand what they did was wrong. I would come away with a better understanding of why they kidnapped me and likely forgive them too. Won't you be my neighbor, Mr. Kidnapper? <laughs> that is wonderful. So um, man, the world is not... Uh, was a better place when Mr. Rogers was in it. This next one also <laughs> had a positive note. And this is about what involves one of my favorite shows of all time. This listener says, Rescued? I wouldn't need to be rescued. Dr. Sam Beckett from Quantum Leap would leap into the kidnapper's body and release me. Al would tell him that Ziggy calculates a high probability that Sam is there to release me and turn the kidnapper's life around. The kidnapper is destined to save a child from an awful accident in several years' time. Man, I loved Quantum Leap. It was a hokey show, but they're actually talking about uh, bringing it back. So I'm curious to see if that's going to happen. That could be a good uh, story idea right there. But GMAC, who is our winner? Wes is our winner. Really? Wes says, it's no contest. I do not even have to notify him. He will miss me and move heaven and earth to ensure I am recovered alive and in no more than 24 hours during which time he will endure being shot, tortured, blown up, gassed, poisoned, and being kidnapped himself by terrorists. Hands down, Jack Bauer was suffering no less than four near-death, life-altering experiences in the process. You are not going to be able to hide behind the presidency. Right here, right now, you are going to face justice. Yeah, Wes, Jack Bauer. (laughs) I forgot about the show and also the hilariousness that was all that happened to him. In a single hour. <laughs> like, it was insane. Such a great show, Wes. Thank you very much. Congrats, you're the winner. Santa Lucia Pizza gift card coming your way. 
So, of course, during the pandemic, the teaching and learning model has been modified in all sorts of ways. And at the learning campus at St. Boniface Hospital, the youth bio lab has also been altered. But I know it's doing great work. And I had mentioned a few weeks ago my kids have participated in sessions with this. I'm trying to remember what was dissected. Something was dissected, I think, Greg. But the youth bio lab is reaching out to make sure kids are still getting all sorts of great lessons in science and beyond. Yeah, it was actually your comment that had me wondering and thinking that maybe we could talk about the Youth Bio Lab. So I reached out to my friends at St. Boniface Hospital. They reached out to me and here we are. And I've been fortunate to spend time in this lab when students are there learning about life science, interacting with our next guest and taking advantage of the state of the art equipment, which mimics an actual research lab. It's a fantastic resource for students, we want to say good morning to Stephen Jones, director at Youth Biolab Jeunesse, located inside the Albertson Research Center at St. Boniface Hospital. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, everybody. Nice to talk to you again. Always great to talk to you, my friend. Tell us about the lab itself, Stephen. Paint us, as our colleague Richard Cloutier would say, paint us a radio picture. All right. Well, I'll do my best. And, and like Lauren said, if, if they were here, your kids probably were dissecting something. That sounds about right. Um, yeah, we've uh, we've got the biggest, it's actually the biggest, most beautiful lab here in the research center. Um, you know, above us, we've got about 25 different labs doing all sorts of amazing things in, you know, heart research and Alzheimer's and diabetes and functional foods. And uh, they built us the biggest, most beautiful lab here to uh, to share all these amazing things that we do with uh, with Manitoba kids from grade five to grade twelve. We've got a huge space where where you know in normal times uh, we fill it full of kids, uh, over forty five hundred kids every year in a normal year. Uh, you know, come into our space, and and the goal is just to get their hands into it and in biomedical science and, and actually give them the hands-on experiences that, you know, can connect the things that they're learning about in, in class with, uh, with all the things that, uh, that we do here in a, in a world-class research center. Now, the session actually happened within the last few months, I, I think. And so we had passed the hospital while driving and my oldest said, hey, I think that's the people who did the dissection with us. And it was over video, which is the way you've had to adapt, if I'm not mistaken, Stephen. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, we, this year we've been able to mix in a bit of both. And, uh, yeah, so we, we kind of shifted, like everybody else has, uh, to an online virtual model. And, you know, our goal is always really to, to support teachers out there in, in any way we can, right? So um, some of it's field trips, but some of it's teachers just saying, hey, I'm teaching this. Is there a way we can connect uh, in some way to, to show my kids some, some of the real science going on. So yeah, we've, we've had to make a shift and um, we've got a really nice setup. Actually, what we can do is uh, we've got a microscope wired right into our virtual setup so kids can see things, all the things we're doing here live. Now, it's not as fun, obviously, as, you know, being able to get in as coming in and, and getting your hands dirty, hands on, but uh, it's really allowed us to, to reach out and actually meet a lot of kids that maybe we wouldn't meet in a normal school year. Uh, kids outside the perimeter, like even this afternoon, I'm meeting uh, Mrs. Johnson's grade 11 bio class at Gillum School, uh, for example, who, you know, in a normal year, we wouldn't be able to meet, but we'll be able to connect this afternoon uh, online. Geographically speaking, uh, has this pandemic allowed you to connect with classrooms that are further away, like maybe with schools who just can't make it to Winnipeg? Exactly. And that's always been our challenge. Like we've been very, you know, we've been very fortunate and, and you know, almost too successful with uh, folks who are here, can get here within a bus ride. But uh, 
that's our goal is to really in over the last couple of years has, has been to reach out and, and meet as many kids. Uh, last week we did something with Frontier School Division where we had kids from Churchill all the way to the south of the province, uh, pretty much from everywhere across Manitoba joining in for a day of, uh, of fun learning and uh, making new connections with teachers and kids. Steve, your enthusiasm for this is obviously infection, infectious and the way you've gone about uh, building this program is absolutely stellar. I know you've had some corporate help along the way. RBC has actually got their name on this lab, so that's critical. But how did the lab start and, and how did it come to be? Can you give us a little bit of a history lesson? I know you're a scientist guy, but uh, maybe yeah, give us I, some well, history I... as well. Yeah, I, st I started here in heart research, well, now more than 20 years ago, and then kind of followed an interest in, in education. And, and really how it started, Greg, was um, just partnering with, with interested teachers and interested school divisions. And it started here in our own neighborhood. Uh, Louis Riel School Division jumped on board right away and said, let's, let's build something together. Let's build something together that can connect kids to um, things that go on in their own community. And, and kind of as Lauren said, hey, there's kids that can drive by St. B now and, and kind of have a connection to the place. And often kids' connections to a hospital, anyone's connections to a hospital, sometimes aren't very positive, right? That's just the nature of it. But if we can provide kids with that, that sort of connection, um, maybe we can build a, a, not only a healthier but a, but a more positive uh, uh, community and and uh, society ourselves, and so that's really where it started. Partner with uh, partner with school divisions, and we've now we've got a whole bunch of school divisions involved uh, on a yearly basis, and uh, lots of support from our our friends here at St. Boniface Hospital Foundation and and donors uh, who donate to the foundation have really kept us going, along with some some federal funding from from NSERC uh, to to share the work that we do. I'm wondering what you hear, like the feedback you get from the schools, Stephen, because I'm looking at some of the courses you offer. So you could do like a diabetes and eye dissection. If you're in grade 11, you might even do a heart dissection. You have DNA isolation and, and all these different tools and things that you might learn in your lab that are maybe augmenting what a school might not be able to provide. Like not all schools can have 50 microscopes for everybody in science class and they can't right. all have the ability to do these things. And so it's a resource issue sometimes. We hear all the time about the resource crunch. Is this stepping in in some ways to sort of fill that gap? Well, for sure. That's what we try and do is, is things that you can't do in a high school science lab, right? So we can, we can run live cells. It's just things that you can't, you can't do in a school that we're, we're set up to do here, just like all of our, our research labs uh, upstairs. And, and, you know, that's the beauty of this is we, we really get to teach what we love. We really get to help engage kids with the science. Not all these kids are, I always say this, is not all these kids are going to be, you know, future doctors or scientists necessarily. That'd be great if they are. Um, but all these kids are going to be future patients, right? They're going to be future patients here in Manitoba. And, and the more that they can understand about, you know, the science behind health, and then maybe the healthier they'll be down the road. Like, why do we need to do all these things to keep our bodies healthy? Um, that's what our research labs here study too, is, is what's that science behind health and, and how does health really work? And just in terms of learning, uh, you know, in school, we all had something that we, we had to learn and didn't really care for, whether it was literature or or maybe it was biology. I, I, I personally sucked at chemistry. Um, but, uh, you know, science is it's important for everybody to learn. You mentioned that not everybody's going to go on to become a doctor or a scientist, but it's still important to learn at least some basic stuff about it. But, but why would you say it's important to learn about science when you're growing up? 
Well, I think I think some of it over the last you know this last two years have shown us the importance for all of us to understand uh, the science behind disease, right? As as we've watched this pandemic unfold and as we've all reacted to it in in different ways, the more we understand how these things work and and how science as a whole and how scientists do their job and uh, and how information comes about, um, I think that benefits everybody in in society. And you know, it's an easy way to engage kids even at a grade five level is is learning about the body. We can start with the gross things and the interesting things and uh, learn some about how our amazing bodies work. It's amazing how that building has filled up over the years, started with uh, less than a handful of people uh, back in the late 1980s. And here we are educating young people inside a working laboratory in such an incredible facility. Stephen, thanks for doing what you do. We appreciate you making time for us. And uh, good luck uh, with the students from Gillum via video today. We, we, we appreciate you making time. Absolutely. And anyone can check us out at youthbiolab.ca. Um, we got a whole bunch of YouTube videos and things that teachers can use anytime they want and, and they can get in touch. And we love, uh, love being out there working with kids and we're looking forward to having them filling up the lab again soon. Stephen Jones, director at Youth Biolab Jeunesse, located inside the Albrechtson Research Centre at St. Boniface Hospital. Joining us live on the start, it is 9.45. At, go ahead, Ryan. I was going to say, I'm glad he mentioned the uh, videos because my follow-up was can I call and contact him directly the next time there's a snow day for a science session? <laughs> I was like, while you're on the line, if I could just, uh, do you have teams I can access you on? Because <laughs> science class is not taught well by me. Yeah, and it's um, it's good that he pointed out the gross, you know, kid, learning first about the gross things. I don't know what it is about being a kid that yes. makes you really curious about the gross stuff but uh, or not like it yeah like i think there's a threshold there right depending on when you're exposed to it not to interrupt you brett but there, there's a real like either you're going to really engage certain people <laughs> or if you don't do it right you might turn them off from science forever right i still remember dissecting a worm what a disaster <laughs> the smell i remember oh. i still remember the smell that came out of the worm just hide. yeah that yes that's what it i guess that's what it was <laughs> Yuck. Like, what am I even seeing inside a worm that's <laughs> one inch long? Like, I, <laughs> clearly, it did not get me down the right path. But anyway. Hey, thanks for listening to the Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think. And hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global. And on Instagram, at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.